0: Hello and welcome to Stuff That Interests Me, with me, Dominic Frisby. Well, in 2011, if we'd all listened to this man, none of us would ever have to work again. His name is Roger Veer, he's a businessman and an investor, American-born but has since renounced his citizenship and is a national of St Kitts. The reason we should have listened... Not only was he an early investor in Bitcoin, perhaps more significantly, he was one of Bitcoin's early champions. There are videos of him from August 2011, when Bitcoin was about $10, challenging people to bet him $10,000 that Bitcoin would outperform gold, silver, the US stock market and the US dollar by more than 100 times. He updated the bet in 2012 when Bitcoin was only up 11%, calling Bitcoin the most important invention in the history of humankind since the Internet. Today, Bitcoin sits at over $7,000, some 700 times higher. He won the bet many times over. His Bitcoin evangelism has led him to be known as Bitcoin Jesus. And I'm delighted to be sitting with him now. Roger Veer, welcome to the show. Congratulations. Um, why don't we start with, how did that? who coined that name, Bitcoin Jesus? How did it come about? I think the first time I remember anybody referring to me with that name, uh, which, to
1: be honest, I'm not such a big fan of. Things didn't work out so well for the original Jesus. But uh, <laughs> I was at, uh, at a barbecue in Washington State, And uh, this was probably 2012, maybe early 2013. And uh, I was telling a whole bunch of high school kids that had come over from the neighboring house to the barbecue about Bitcoin and explaining how it works and setting them all up with wallets on their phones. And, you know, kids, you know, digital money on the internet doesn't seem that strange to them. Uh, So they were naturally, oh, this is great. And, you know, a lot of them were probably too young to even open a bank account or get a credit card, but they realized that. With Bitcoin, it doesn't matter how old you are, right? Uh, and so they were loving it. And there were maybe, you know, a dozen kids around me in a circle, all listening enthusiastically. And one of the adults look, looked on and he said, Roger, it's like you're, you're a Bitcoin Jesus and you have all of your disciples around you. And uh, I think that was probably the first time I remember anybody saying something
0: like that. It's one of the things that's kind of characterized this whole Bitcoin movement is it's always had this sort of undercurrent of comedy to it and uh, to, uh, along with the anarchy. I suppose it's fair to say you're less keen on Bitcoin now than you were, and you've become more keen on bitcoin cash, which is uh, which was a, 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 a an offshoot if you like of the main Bitcoin and um, why don't you tell us tell us about that
1: yeah I, I would actually even go so far as to argue that Bitcoin cash is the original Bitcoin, and the thing that everybody's calling Bitcoin today no longer is. And so the, the things that made me so excited about Bitcoin wasn't the fact that it was called Bitcoin. It was that it allowed you to send and receive any amount of money with anyone, anywhere, instantly, basically for free, and there was nothing that anybody could do to stop it. And all of those characteristics are still alive and well in the form of Bitcoin Cash. They're no longer alive and well in the form of you know Bitcoin BTC. And so the, the mainstream media and the masses around the world are all you know a bit in love with, with what they're calling Bitcoin today. But that's not the same version of Bitcoin that I got in love with in 2011 and made those public bets with the world saying, hey, watch this. This is going to change everything. This is one of the most important inventions in the entire history of humankind. That version of Bitcoin today is called Bitcoin Cash and the BTC version of Bitcoin. It, it doesn't have a defining white paper it doesn't have the defining you know ethos or spirit or, or, or even in goal and uh, I'm not nearly as bullish on BTC Bitcoin as I am on on bitcoin cash but from an investor standpoint alone you know Bitcoin BTC has the mind share and you go up to the average person on the street have you heard of Bitcoin and they'll say yeah sure and the news media is reporting on it but the usefulness that made Bitcoin popular in the first place is gone from, from the BTC version of Bitcoin, and the usefulness that made Bitcoin popular to begin with is alive and well in Bitcoin Cash. And that's why people like myself, you know, as the CEO of Bitcoin.com, I'm busy promoting Bitcoin Cash. Uh, Jihan Wu, the CEO of Bitmain, the largest Bitcoin mining equipment manufacturer in the entire world, and the first person in the entire world to translate the original Bitcoin white paper into Chinese and spread Bitcoin into China. He's also now a giant Bitcoin cash proponent. And if you look around the ecosystem, almost all of the early adopters and early proponents of Bitcoin, they're busy promoting Bitcoin cash today. They're no longer promoting the BTC version of Bitcoin. And I think that's a really, really bullish sign for the future of Bitcoin cash.
0: So would you be prepared to make a similar bet to the one you made in August 2011? Maybe not for the same multiples, but the one you made in 2011 where you said, you know, Bitcoin would outperform by a hundred times, would you be able to make a similar bet with Bitcoin cash?
1: Yeah, I think in the long term, I think that's not a challenge, by the way. That's a great question, though. Um, And maybe I should make some sort of a public bet like that. Uh, um, But it's really hard to know because network effects are incredibly important, too. There's a thing called Metcalf's law, which says that the the value of a network increases to the square of the number of of nodes or connections on that network. the BTC version of Bitcoin has a great big giant network that's bigger than Bitcoin Cash's network today, and so is Bitcoin Cash going to be able to overcome that? I think so. Um, I think it's likely, but it's, it's it's not guaranteed. And remember, the dollar, or the pound, or the euro has a much 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 bigger network effect than you know the BTC version of Bitcoin did to begin with. But BTC's made huge 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 strides over the last couple of years. So, am I willing to you know make such a clear bet like I did the last time? Maybe, but I'd have to think about exactly what the guidelines would be for that. But uh, actions speak louder than words, and with my own money, I, I used to hold a whole bunch of BTC, and I sold the vast majority of it to buy more BCH, more Bitcoin Cash, and so I think. Like was I that? Said,
0: did you do that in one stroke, or was that a gradual thing?
1: Um, I did. I did a lot of it pretty quickly, and then I've I've been selling some more over time. And as I've been watching the ecosystem develop. Uh, even actually uh, last night, as I was going to bed, I sold some more BTC for BCH. And if I had had time today, I would have sold some more. So I'm uh, dollar cost average is the term for it, even though there's aren't dollars yeah. involved. But uh, I'm I'm selling it over time. So we I call it average. pound cost
0: average. Do, do you actually say <laughs> yeah. that? <in> the, okay. <laughs>
1: Growing up as an American, everyone said dollar cost average. So I guess yeah. you could say I'm Bitcoin cash averaging at the moment. Okay.
0: So. And the. What about the argument that Bitcoin has become the sort of the gold standard, the reserve currency and all the other altcoins are sort of they, they've each got their own benefits and that reserve currency status is what will preserve Bitcoin. And, and if you like, I mean, there are so many other uh, alternative, you know, Monero or Dash or whoever it is that you can send just as well as you can send Bitcoin cash. What is what is it that makes Bitcoin cash better?
1: Um, so there's a couple of different things. There, there. are two questions. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. I beg your pardon. Um, so for, for the first one, uh, you're absolutely right. Like The BTC version of Bitcoin is viewed as the reserve cryptocurrency, and it's the cryptocurrency that most other cryptocurrencies are traded against currently. And that gives it a huge advantage. But recently we've seen more and more exchanges coming online that are using Bitcoin Cash as the reserve currency or the base currency, including uh, CoinEx.com which, depending on the day, is the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the entire world. Uh, Depending on the day, it bounces back and forth between Binance and and CoinEx. And so that's a pretty darn big deal. One of the very biggest cryptocurrency exchanges in the entire world is now using Bitcoin Cash as the reserve currency that all the other cryptocurrencies are traded against. In regards to which currencies are the fastest and cheapest and most reliable, Bitcoin Cash... uh, has either the the largest or the second largest number of merchants accepting it around the world? It's one of the most widely accepted in all the exchanges. It Is that has, right? It
0: has the second. What, what would the largest merchant number of merchants be? Bitcoin. Probably BTC. Yeah, yeah. Bitcoin.
1: Yeah. So and it, it's we don't know the exact number because there's no central body that keeps track of it. But it's possible already that perhaps Bitcoin Cash has more merchant acceptance uh, in terms of number of websites than BTC does, because uh, every single BitPay merchant. Right, which is the largest payment processor in the world for cryptocurrencies. Every single BitPay merchant accepts Bitcoin Cash, and the same with a Coinbase as well, which is another giant behemoth of a, of a Bitcoin company. So, and it's worth pointing out, too, that all these companies used to be referred to as Bitcoin companies, and it wasn't until the, you know, the Bitcoin BTC camp intentionally made the blocks become full, which made the transactions on Bitcoin become sl- uh, slow, expensive, and unreliable, that now people don't refer to these exchanges as Bitcoin exchanges, they refer to them as cryptocurrency exchanges. And they don't re- refer to you know Bitcoin wallet companies as Bitcoin wallet companies, they refer to them as cryptocurrency wallet companies or crypto companies. And that's an example of how Bitcoin's first-mover advantage was was destroyed, whether on purpose or on accident, uh, the fact of the matter is Bitcoin's first-mover advantage in the field of cryptocurrencies was, was destroyed by this idiotic, full-block, high-fee policy promoted by People, the likes of you know, Blockstream and, and why? What's in it for them? I think they didn't study economics. If they studied economics, they'd realize that everything is competing against everything else. So Coca Cola is competing against Pepsi, is competing against Gatorade, is competing against water, is competing against tea, is competing against you know, not having anything to drink for the moment at all. Um, and the same is true with cryptocurrencies. Every cryptocurrency is competing against every other cryptocurrency, but they're also competing against PayPal, against Visa, against bank wire transfers, against cash in your pocket. Everything's competing against everything else, whereas you see many of these the BTC supporters today, they say that nothing could ever supplant Bitcoin. There's no way that Bitcoin could ever lose out in the competition here. and. For anybody that's paying attention it's already lost the vast majority of its market share in the cryptocurrency so you're
0: suggesting there's some complacency in the sort of core development team a lot
1: of complacency and another reoccurring theme i've noticed is that none of these people in the bitcoin core or btc supporting camp currently none of them are actually using it as a currency none of them use it to buy or sell or, or pay for things whereas the bitcoin cash original camp were all the people that were actually trying to use it as a currency to buy and sell things uh on the internet
0: Okay, let me put something to you. Um, I like to look to black markets because black markets have a long history of being the first to embrace a new technology and to make it work on a practical day-to-day basis. And when people turn around to me and they say, oh, Bitcoin, what's it used for? Um, You know, I often point them in the direction of black markets. That's not me advocating black markets necessarily, but it's just me demonstrating the fact that people are using it on a practical day-to-day basis. And I've sort of been through the various dark, Net sites, or some of them, about I would say seven or eight in the last couple of days, and uh, uh, purely for research purposes, I stress. And um, I've noticed that there's a couple that are accepting Bitcoin Cash. There are a couple that accept Litecoin. There are a couple that um, take Monero, um, but all of them take Bitcoin. And even when you go onto the sites that do accept Bitcoin cash, a couple of the market, the site will accept Bitcoin cash, but it's up to the individual merchants to decide whether they want to accept it or not. And a lot of them don't. Do you have a comment on that? The fact that maybe the black markets haven't embraced it as much as you would like? I think you're exactly right, though, to point out that the black markets are the early
1: adopters of these sorts of things and can be a really good indicator as to what is going to be happening in the future. And uh, even for myself, the way I heard about Bitcoin for the first time, was in reference to the black market called the Silk Road. Yeah, And myself personally, I, I wasn't interested in drugs, but when I heard that people were buying and selling drugs, using some sort of online currency to do it, m- you know, the, all the, my, my my brain just started tingling all over. I thought, what kind of money are they using for this? This must be the most interesting form of money ever. And so that was what led me down the path of where I am today, being so deeply involved in cryptocurrencies. And uh, I think you're exactly right to do some you know research on these uh, dark <laughs> net markets and see, what they're using but uh a lot of it though is, is a chicken and egg problem right people won't use bitcoin cash until people are accepting bitcoin cash and people won't start using it and you know the other way around mm-hmm. so um but the fact that even some are accepting it at all already and everybody had to retool and you know bitcoin cash has only ha- been around for a year now and all these you know bitcoin btc has what nine years of you know history under its belt and Uh, Monero has several years and Litecoin has several years and uh, I think one of the big things that Bitcoin Cash should be working on in the very near future is additional privacy for the protocol because like it or not one of the things that makes money money is fungibility every piece of money has to be the same as every other piece of money otherwise it's not good money and Fungibility is just kind of a fancy word for privacy. So I'm looking forward to more privacy tools being built on top of Bitcoin Cash. And well, when that happens, I think you'll see an even bigger uptake from darknet markets with Bitcoin Cash.
0: Okay. Well, I'm actually involved. I'm setting up a... Um, a darknet market? No, not a darknet market. <laughs> a, a, a privacy investment company. Uh, and we've developed this thing called the Cypherpunk Index of Privacy Coins. And there are arguments going on as to whether we should include Bitcoin Cash in the cypherpunk index of privacy coins. We're, we're arguing about how private it, it is or it isn't. And so, f- as speaking as someone who is looking to invest, you know, is putting up, I mean, we've got Monero, we've got Dash, we've got Zcash, sorry, Zcash. And uh, and and so we've actually got three tiers of, of privacy coins, with Monero and Zcash, Top tier, second tier, dash, and third tier: Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin. And w- I think it would be very beneficial for Bitcoin Cash if it could move up that range. move up that tier.
1: I completely agree. And uh, at Bitcoin.com, we're actually funding uh, research on, on doing that. Not, not only research, actual uh, implementations of that. So, for example, the Electron Cash wallet now has uh, coin shuffling built right into the wallet. So that that puts it about on the same. Same level of privacy as Dash, but I look forward to things that are just as strong as, you know, Zcash yeah. or, or Monero in the future. And uh, I'm a big fan of, of those sorts of things and look forward to that, those tools being available on Bitcoin Cash uh, in the near future.
0: Now, one of the key developers of Bitcoin Cash is a controversial figure. Craig only one, Wright. <laughs> only one. Oh, okay well i was thinking specifically of craig Wright. um can we talk about craig Would sure. you be happy to talk about him um now obviously at one stage you and he got on very well but I, you i think i read a tweet of yours last week or something that you, he's blocked you on twitter or something like that what, what's going on there um i don't really know
1: so i uh, i try to get along well with most people and uh craig you know can be a little bit difficult to get along with but i i had dinner with him about a week ago and i I thought it was a a nice dinner i enjoyed the conversation craig is incredibly knowledgeable about a whole lot of things and a whole lot of areas and can also be really difficult to deal with in in other areas
0: so i I will say this i met him for an hour and it was possibly the most awkward hour i've ever had in my life i mean that's a little bit of an exaggeration but you you get my point i i I completely as
1: someone who's spent multiple hours with craig I, i completely understand your point there but uh oftentimes people that are on I guess a different wavelength than yeah. many other people they can be a, a bit awkward but those are also the people that come up with these new ideas that really change the course of civilization
0: so, so. was he in your view one part of Satoshi I, you don't have to comment on that if you don't want. I, to I
1: can comment on it and, and the short answer is that I don't
0: know um, did he not show you some keys at some stage
1: he, he offered to show me some keys at some stage um At the end of the day, though, I I don't think it really matters who Satoshi is. It's the underlying characteristics of the system that Satoshi designed that are important. And if it was Craig, that's fine. If it wasn't Craig, that's fine, too. Um, And whoever Satoshi is, you know, he invented literally one of the most important things in the history of humankind. And I hope he gets whatever it is he wants out of life. And if he wants to be public and, you know, bask in the limelight, that's fine. And if he wants to remain completely anonymous somewhere else, that's fine, too. If he wants to straddle the middle line his prerogative to do so and I'm, I'm not gonna
0: try and disrupt what satoshi wants let me um just chuck in my 2p if you don't mind i did probably more research than anyone into who satoshi was when i was writing my book way back when i got slightly obsessed with it and i was doing all sorts of linguistic comparisons and so on and craig wright is not someone i even considered was satoshi at the time of writing the book i came to the conclusion that it was nick zabo and but I've sort of looked at Craig's stuff since. And one of the things that characterised Satoshi was his understatement and his calmness. In everything he wrote, there was this kind of calm quality. Craig does not have he that He doesn't at have all. that. He does not have that at all. And in addition... Um, uh, but Dave... Uh, uh, it's Dave Clyman did have that. And in addition, also, Craig's prose doesn't tally with Satoshi's prose. There are some inconsistencies there. So... If Craig was Satoshi, now, but Craig does have the knowledge at that required intersection between economics and computer programming and libertarian thought and being a cipher, you know, that sort of intersection of knowledge that Satoshi has to have had, uh, which, by the way, Nick Zarbo has to have had as well. Um, But Nick Zarbo's prose does tally with Satoshi's, but he denies it and... And Satoshi did say in his white paper, electronic cash, whereas Bitgold, the precursor, was more designed less to be cash, electronic, exactly, it was designed to be a reserve currency. So if you like, what Bitcoin has become is more like Nick Szabo's vision, even if he wasn't the original programmer. So I kind of buy into the theory that Dave Kleiman wrote the posts. By the way, it's really hard to find stuff that Dave Kleiman's written to compare their two processes. He's usually written it with somebody else. But if he was Satoshi, it was, the, it was two and maybe even a maybe third of him.
1: So speaking of a third, have you followed any of the recent developments in regards to a man named Phil Wilson in Australia? No. So just yesterday or the day before, there's a seven-and-a-half-hour long interview with this Phil Wilson character that was just posted on YouTube. I'm three hours through the seven-and-a-half-hour <laughs> interview, but I found it incredibly interesting. And uh, seven-and-a-half hours, granted, is a very, very long time, but... Uh, I'm at at the time of this recording I'm 3 hours through the okay. seminar and it's been very entertaining the entire way through very interesting and he lays out a very very compelling case as to how the three parts of Satoshi were Phil Wilson, Craig Wright and Dave Kleinman, and uh, I don't know if that's the case or not. But if you want to play the Who's Satoshi game, yeah, Phil
0: Wilson's another person oh, well, to, thanks, to look into. Thanks hearing. very much for the lead. And this I've is I've written the book. To, yeah. I've written the book, and I don't want to go there ever again. But it's, it's, it gets kind of addictive. But and, and I, I completely agree. By the way, it really doesn't matter because it's ultimately it was, the, it was the initiator, but ultimately it became an open source project, and there are so many different people who've contributed to it. So it really does not matter. Right. Except but it for is the kind fact of fun. That there's one point <laughs> two. Yeah, it is kind of fun. <laughs> Um, So let's talk about, we were talking about black markets there, and you've been a big champion of of Ross Ulbricht. Let's talk about Ross Ulbricht. For those of you that don't know, Ross was the guy, the original founder of the original Silk Road. And one of the lines I like to use, by the way, is what Bitcoin has done for black markets, online black markets. It's, It's enabled them to exist where previously they couldn't exist because of the traceability of money. And so effectively, Bitcoin... Has done to, done to the international drugs trade what the internet did to media and publishing, which is quite a nice analogy. That's a great analogy. Yeah, and it has. I mean, you've got all these kind of um, guys with their international monopolies suddenly being subverted by small merchants selling stuff online, much more safely, much better quality. It's wonderful, delivered and, right to your door. Yeah, I saw by the postman. <laughs> 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 so, um, so let's talk about Ross Albrecht, who was like the the, the um, pace setter, if you like, the the, the trailblazer. Yeah, the, the innovator, right? If you think about it, it was one of,
1: the Silk Road was probably the most successful startup ever, right? In the course of about a year, it went from nothing to being one of the biggest marketplaces in the entire world, selling all sorts of things to all sorts of people. More successful oh, than Amazon? Yeah, probably more, and certainly in a shorter time scale. Mm. So, so from that perspective alone, it's pretty darn amazing. And I think he should be celebrated as an entrepreneur. And if you read the terms of service from the site, anything that's sole purpose was to be able to harm somebody wasn't allowed for, for sale on the site. So, and as, you know, a longtime libertarian myself, I feel, I feel very strongly. I own myself. I own my own body. If I want to drink, a, you know, water, coffee, or alcohol, or crack cocaine, my body belongs to me. And so I have the absolute right to do that, and it doesn't matter what words politicians get together and write down on a piece of paper. Writing down words on a piece of paper and calling it a law does not alter morality, and if you look at human history, you know the, the the greatest atrocities in human history were all completely legal. You know, rounding up Jews by the millions and executing them, completely legal. Slavery in the United States, completely legal. All these horrible things throughout human history, politicians got together, wrote down words on a piece of paper, and called it a law, and said, oh. We took something that normally would be an evil act, and now because we made it a law, it's, it's considered a good act, and it's no problem, and we have the right to do it. That's a bunch of nonsense, and I don't buy into any of that. And,
0: um, I'm- but you, you're complaining about the rules of the game. And, and you're complaining about the game, if you like, and you're complaining about the rules of the game. And by the way, I share your view. Uh, you'll share your libertarian views. Perhaps not... I've described myself as a minarchist, and I mean, you're probably like a full-blown do, anarchist. Do
1: you know what the difference between a minarchist and an anarchist is?
0: Go on, tell me. About six months. <laughs> Very good. Um, the. But anyway, leaving that aside, he did break the law, and the law is clear. Even if the law... I mean, drugs laws are one of the most dumbest most harmful piece of legislation ever enacted but nevertheless they are the law and he's broken the law and the problem he has is that they are trying to set a precedent they're saying look this is what happens you know they've given him the the harshest possible treatment they could possibly have given him because they want they don't want anyone else doing this the fact that within a week of the Silk Road closing down 20 copycat sites had emerged is neither here nor there but so how do you address that? Because your criticism was with was with the law.
1: Yeah, my, my criticism is with the law, you're, you're right. And I, I think the law is immoral and the law is wrong and the politicians that enacted it are wrong. And I'm looking forward to using technology to undermine their ability to enforce
0: those sorts of immoral laws. But how do we get Ross out in the meantime? Apart from giving yeah, you I was hoping of-
1: you had an answer for that. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Okay. In the short term, I, I don't know. In the longer term, I think we can use technology to undermine politicians from enforcing these immoral laws and uh hopefully within our lifetime we'll be able to get ross out and every single other nonviolent drug offender that's in prison and there's another you know longtime friend of mine is in federal prison in colorado right now for growing marijuana and In in colorado in colorado a state where marijuana is completely legal but it's still legal at the federal level so he's being held in a federal prison in colorado for having grown marijuana and it's just absolutely just disgusting
0: imagine how much lower your taxes would be if drugs were legal and, yeah, And imagine how you know.
1: people use drugs because they like them and they make them feel happy. That's why people drink alcohol or wine, and that's why people smoke marijuana, and that's why people use other drugs, because they like them and make them feel happy. And sometimes people get out of control with alcohol and start fights or crash their car into something, but like, you punish them for crashing their car into something or for starting the fight, not for the actual consumption of the alcohol. And the, the same logic should be applied to these other drugs, because just because some people might handle them irresponsibly... Doesn't mean that uh, that people shouldn't be allowed to have them because they own themselves and their lives belong to them, and my life belongs to me.
0: What's the future of libertarianism? At the moment, I see this this like two huge a battle is brewing, and there's and it's it's not so much between left and right; it's between authoritarian and libertarian, and it's between tax and economic freedom, and you know it's a bit like you know the lord of the rings or something you know that this great battle between the forces of good and the forces of mordor is coming and and like the forces are being assembled and on the on the on the bad guys side they've got the law they've got the army they've got all the lots gun, of men with guns lots yeah. of men with guns and so on but on the good guys side there's technology but how do the how do the good guys win What's the future
1: for libertarianism? So uh, an, another thinker who's really influenced my view of the world is uh, David Friedman, the son of the Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman. And in the late 90s, David Friedman wrote a book called Future Imperfect that I really found to be fascinating. He predicted a lot of the things that we're seeing happen today in the advent of cryptocurrencies and online marketplaces where you're using, you use know, public key cryptography to verify your online identity that's completely separate from your world real world identity. And the question he asked in this book is are these new technologies that are coming down the line at the end of the day are they going to wind up being liberating for the individual, or are they going to wind up being tools the state is able to use to control individuals even more than they're being controlled today? And and we don't know the answer to that question, but I I would urge all these technologists and libertarian leaning people out there to work on the technologies that are wind up being net you know, a net liberating force for, for individuals rather than a another tool for oppression and control by, by governments. But we don't know. And we can't stop it, right? You you can't stop the the evolution of technology. All we can do is try and hope to guide it in a direction that that allows people to have more control of their own lives. But some of the things are really, really terrifying. You know, some of these biotechnology stuff, people are going to be able to make, you know, a virus that kills maybe not even only a specific race. But a specific person right if they get a dna sample pretty soon they'll be able to construct a a, a virus of that will kill only the person that they have that dna from and that's some scary stuff that's coming in
0: that is how, terrifying
1: how do you regulate that how, how how do you stop that or and is it stoppable at all and i i don't know and uh it is terrifying right because there's lots of people that are mad at lots of people on the yeah internet. And i'll say yeah so be careful who gets a copy of your dna as well right and and there was an interesting case. And, you know, of course, I'm glad they caught they caught the guy. But they caught uh, – the way they caught him is pretty scary. There was a, a serial killer in, in uh, the Los Angeles area. And I think he was busy. He killed, I don't know, like 30 women in the 70s or something. It was, you know, long before my time. But the way they caught this person is some of these DNA testing websites where you can get your, you know, your, your
0: – uh, I know. 23andMe type I of thing.
1: Yeah. Some people had sent in their DNA to get their genetic profile done. And apparently this company was turning over all the information directly to the police, and they had some DNA samples that when it came in, they knew – because they had DNA from the serial killer, but they didn't know who it was. When the DNA samples came in, they knew that the killer was related to these other people by by blood. So then they looked at who the family members of these other people who they had the DNA and their ID with. And then they were able to narrow down who this guy was, and and of course I'm glad they caught a serial yeah, killer. Yeah, but the talk way talk
0: about a violation of privacy. Right,
1: the way they caught him isn't
0: isn't a very very pleasant uh, pleasant way. It's a rather frightening the way they they caught him. I have three letters to say to that. Omg, mm-hmm. right. Um, let's talk about. Um, I, I want to ask you two more questions before we wrap up, if that's okay, Roger. Um, But the first one is you did some time yourself way back when, and I think that might have um, formed, formulated your own uh, anti-state views. Is that absolutely right? Oh, here we go. I'm being passed a card, a red card, and it says US Department of Justice. And there is a very young-looking Roger Veer in the photograph, looking a little bit like a young Cristiano Ronaldo. If you know who Cristiano Ronaldo is, he's a foot. I think he's the richest sportsman in the world, but he's a football player for Real Madrid. He must but- be very handsome in that case. So. <laughs> but well done for not knowing who he is. And it says "inmate." There we go. Wonderful. So tell us, tell me about that. So I, I just You've uh, got
1: your own barcode as well. It has my own barcode, and it says in big, giant, black letters uh, "inmate" right there, and it has my Federal Bureau of Prisons number. And uh, I hadn't. I hadn't looked at this card for, you know, 15 years or something, and then just recently I had some of my things shipped uh, from the U.S. to the United States, from, from the United States to Japan, rather, and it had all the mail that I had received uh, during the time I was in prison, and this card was in there, and it, it definitely brought back a lot of memories, so I, I put it in my wallet, and I've been carrying it around with me for the last couple of weeks. Uh, just as an interesting... And definitely a yeah, conversation starter for sure. So yeah, I, I spent some time in federal prison. I sold firecrackers on eBay back when eBay had a guns and ammo section and it was perfectly legal to sell these sorts of things on, on uh, eBay. And uh, it wasn't any problem for anyone at all except for myself who also made the mistake of combining that with also running for political office as a libertarian in the United States. And I called the FBI and ATF a bunch of jackbooted thugs and murderers in reference to all the children they burnt to death in a church in Waco, Texas in the mid-90s. And, you know, people that are, you know, maybe 40 years old or older at this point will probably remember when that happened in the United States. And the parents were definitely some religious kooks. But just because the kids' parents were religious kooks doesn't mean that you should burn to death all of them, the kids and the parents alike, uh, in their in their church. I think it was somewhere in the ballpark of like 80 people were literally burnt to death um, Who in a by? church. The ATF and FBI... What's the ATF? Um, I'm sorry, the ATF, for those that don't know, is uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which is another. So, why did they burn these people? Uh, the Disobedience is the, the short answer. So, uh, they surrounded their, their church and told them to come out, but were shooting up at the same time. There's some interesting documentaries that. People but you can't can find. just burn a building, surely? Uh, well, when you're the government, it means you never have to say you're sorry for anything. So, they, I think it was somewhere in the ballpark of maybe. 25 kids that were less than 12 years old were burnt to death in the church and uh i think it was about 80 people total and, and this uh, was
0: in this was not far from where you this was
1: in the united states was, okay. this, this happened in texas and i grew up in california okay. but you know the u.s is a big country I, I, But I, the yeah, new, yeah. news of that sort of yeah, thing yeah, makes I, its way around I and mean, there was there was a standoff of a you know maybe a month or two um with the fbi and the atf but there's a, I think one of the documentaries is a Waco, the rules of engagement, and and there's some really interesting information uh, in some documentaries about this sort of thing. But it's it's clear, like, even if the parents were total nutcases and doing things that were illegal, burning to death a bunch of kids that are less than 12 years old is not acceptable, like, plain and simple. Um, And so for saying these sorts of things and speaking out against it, I wound up becoming the only person in the entire country to be prosecuted for selling these firecrackers without a permit. Uh, even though the company that I was buying them from had no permit, the manufacturer had no permit, dozens of other resellers across the entire United So you're States just
0: buying them at one price and selling them at another, Exactly. Basically. Yep. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So, Which is what every business does, right? If you so they did
0: the same to you they're doing to Ross Ulbricht, but to a lesser extent. They just made an example of you.
1: Yeah. Um, well, what Ross Ulbricht did, I think, was much more clearly illegal than what I did. And, and not that I think he should have gotten the punishment that he deserved, yeah, okay. but for me, like, I was literally buying them from one website and selling them on another website. Okay. And even while I was in prison, other websites were selling the exact same product with no permit. And I was My actual charge was dealing explosives without a permit. The crime was doing it without a permit. The crime wasn't selling explosives. The crime was doing it without a permit. And these other companies were selling the exact same product without a permit. The manufacturer was doing it without a permit. And I was the only person in the entire nation to be prosecuted for doing it without a mm-hmm. permit. How old were you? 19 years old when I was was not being in
0: jail when you were 19 years old and so
1: the whole the, the gears of injustice grind very slowly and so actually I went into prison when I was 22 and got out when I was 23 and then the day I was allowed to leave the country I left the United States and haven't lived there since um, so that
0: informed your decision to leave.
1: Oh, it's, it's yes.
0: <laughs> is that weird? Not kind of having a country because for a bit you will have not had a country, or does it?
1: Oh well, I wasn't living in the United States. And then it took another like decade plus before I actually renounced my U.S. citizenship. Okay. But philosophically, I think the whole idea of citizenship is a bunch of nonsense. Like, sure, well, it's just you're the nation state is yeah, a modern construct. Yeah, you're just taught from a very young age that that's how the world works, and it, it always has, and it always should, even though it hasn't always worked that way, and it certainly shouldn't, but within our, you know, narrow purview of the time. The, the, our modern age,
0: that's how people view the world. Did you kind of get beaten up and stuff in prison? Um, I mean, I know you do martial arts, so you can kind of look after yourself. But...
1: Well, the martial arts started much, much, much after prison. Oh, okay. And uh, actually, when I got out of prison, I didn't realize, you know, I, I was, I'm about 5 feet, 10 inches tall. Which I guess they use here in the UK as well.
0: Yeah, and uh, thank goodness know. we haven't we don't suffer from the tyranny of metric measurements. <laughs> and I, I went in at 155 pounds. I
1: think you might use stones over here. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, but, we do. Uh, anyhow, not so I that's about
0: 65 big. kilos. <laughs> yeah, about, <laughs> well, about
1: 65 kilos. I'm fine yeah. with kilos if you guys are fine yeah. with that. So I went in at around 65. Would have been about kilos. nine
0: stone, nine or ten stones, something like that.
1: And then I didn't realize it, but like the food in prison was so horrible that I didn't even want to touch it, let alone eat it. And basically I just spent all day every day reading books in, in my bunk bed. Um, but by the time I got out, I had lost a whole bunch of weight. And I probably came out somewhere in the ballpark of like 55 kilos or 50 kilos, like Ronnie. really, really skinny. I didn't realize that it had happened. And the first thing my friends said when they saw me when they got out, I said, Roger, you lost a lot of weight. And I wasn't a big guy to, you know to begin with when I went in. And they started making jokes that most people go into prison, they come out, you know, yeah. real strong and, and, and buffed. But uh, I lost a bunch of weight while I was in prison. And oh,
0: did you have your own so. cell or were you in a dormitory or? So in the first, uh, the
1: first maybe a month or so, I was in a big giant dormitory of a couple hundred people and it's really loud and you have to wear earplugs to sleep because everything echoes people off People
0: are farting and snoring and all that stuff. And, yeah,
1: all that stuff and and worse and, you know, occasional okay. fights here and there, not, not too much like where i was was a medium security facility so there weren't a you know there wasn't a huge amount of fighting and, and most people would think "Well, were you scared of the other the other inmates and no absolutely not the people you have to be scared of are the guards those guards are there day after day year after year and a lot of them are really really bored and the way they solve their boredom is to just harass different inmates and uh you have to you know when you and even to this day. If I hear keys jingling, it really, really? gives me a uneasy feeling because the guards, as they would walk around the prison, they would let their keychain jingle to, to kind of warn the inmates that they're coming so that the inmates can hide whatever it is that they're up to, and you know people are giving each other tattoos and doing all sorts of stuff that they're not supposed to be doing, and the guards most of the time most of the time, they don't want to deal with that sort of thing, so they let their keys jingle to give notice to the inmates to hide whatever you're up to, so that way the guard doesn't have to deal okay. with it either. But uh, when you hear the keys jingling, you know that trouble is coming and it, even to this day you know I've been out almost, uh, you know, coming up on 20 years and it still gives me a really bad feeling
0: whenever I hear keys jingling to this very day. So. Haunting stuff. Roger, let me ask you one last question or one last subject and that is like a lot of people have had to deal with this and that is I suppose we can call it Bitcoin regret. And that's people who've known about Bitcoin for a long time. They got involved in it. Um, It sort of happened to me a little bit in that I had some coins uh, early on that were stolen and I never bought back the coins that were stolen. It happens to maybe the people who were involved in MT Gox who had their coins stolen. Um, There was a guy I read about who... um, You know, was very evangelical about Bitcoin and he mined and I think he had like seven and a half thousand coins and then they got stolen. And there's the other guy who whose wife threw away his hard drive and he's been walking around the rubbish dumps of South Wales trying to find his. You know, how do you how do people like that who like the opportunity that Bitcoin was that is it's not even a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's almost a once in a generation where you can turn. Maybe once ever. Maybe even once ever, where you could turn literally a hundred pounds into a million pounds or more. And many people have. And many people have done that by accident. You know, they lost their phone and then they found their phone again. They, they lost their keys and they recovered their keys. You know, but what about the people? You know, but for every kind of wonderful story, there's someone who got hacked, there's someone who sold his coins too early, there's someone who lost his coins, there's someone who lost his keys. I think it's something like 15 to 20% of Bitcoins have been lost. How do those guys reconcile themselves? Even the guys who just knew about it and for whatever reason, you know, their lives were too busy, just didn't get involved in it and have missed the bubble. What do those people do now? What do you have to say to those people apart from ha ha ha? There, there, there certainly will be no ha 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 from me yeah. on that, but um,
1: it's certainly high risk and it's not guaranteed. But I, I think we have a bit of a second shot here in the form of Bitcoin Cash, because Bitcoin Cash has all the underlying characteristics that made Bitcoin popular in the first place, and made the price of Bitcoin skyrocket. Bitcoin no longer has those characteristics, Bitcoin Cash does. So that's why I've been selling, and right now today, you can get about 11 Bitcoin Cash for every one Bitcoin BTC. Uh, That's a pretty darn good ratio there, I think. Mm -hmm. And Even if you're more bullish on BTC than BCH, Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash, I don't think that there is eleven to one more reasons to be more bullish on the BTC version of Bitcoin than on the Bitcoin Cash version. So uh I think you have a second shot with Bitcoin Cash and that's uh that's what I've done with most of my own Bitcoin is converted it to Bitcoin Cash and uh Did I think you that's how many Bitcoins what was your original investment
0: into Bitcoin? Twenty
1: five thousand dollars was it? Yeah, my first wire was for twenty five thousand dollars to, to Mt. Gox. A, and they were about a dollar a piece at the time. They were, did you take they were, them out of Mt. Gox. Uh, yeah, of course. And okay. uh the the advice has been the same from day one until today. Always hold your cryptocurrency yourself or in a wallet where you control the private keys. Because if you entrust somebody else to, to hold them for you, bad things can happen. And just ask every previous Mt. Gox customer. And uh, I didn't lose any Bitcoins myself in Mt. Gox because I, I learned my lesson the hard way previously with another event that a lot of people won't have even heard of at this point within the Bitcoin ecosystem. But there was another one called Bitcoinica. And uh, I think a couple hundred thousand bitcoins were were stolen from Bitcoinica and hacked, and I lost. I think it was twenty eight thousand bitcoins of my own in Bitcoinica. And granted, the price at the time was around five dollars each, so
0: it was still grand. It was still one hundred
1: twenty five grand, which has made ever since then. Every time the price of Bitcoin has gone up, it's been a bit bittersweet yeah. because I'm reminded of those 28,000 Bitcoins and what they could have been today. And today,
0: I, I, I don't even want
1: to think It's uh, so half a billion would pounds. Would be, yeah,
0: half, half a billion. Well, no, sorry. No, it's a quarter, a quarter of a, quarter billion, of a pound. billion pounds. Yeah. Not, not bad. Do- right? Dollars, I mean, so, quarter of a billion. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd settle for that. Um, what are you doing now, Roger? What are your projects? What have you got going on? So my, my big project now is Bitcoin.com that we're using to build the tools to empower
1: individuals to have complete control over their own money all over the world. And uh, so the Bitcoin.com wallet is the the core tenant of that that allows people, just like in the earliest days of Bitcoin, to now send and receive any amount of money with anyone anywhere in the world instantly, basically for free, and there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. And the Bitcoin.com wallet, of course, each individual is holding their private keys themselves. Even at Bitcoin.com, we don't have the ability to freeze anybody's account or block them from sending or receiving that money. And so we want to build the tools to enable individuals all over the world to to have control over their own lives. That's that's the name of the game for me.
0: It's a fantastic thing. There's an enormous boom coming in the world. I mean, just you describing that the, 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 the murder in that church. If people had had smartphones then and they'd videoed it, if people had had smartphones in World War One when they were going over the top in the trenches, the war would have stopped. The smartphone is a fantastic tool of, of uh, bringing truth to power and and limiting power and the same thing will happen as more and more people get their smartphones in the third world Uh, the unbanked will suddenly be part of a new financial system and that is a wonderful opportunity Um, and i'm sure that's a a trend that you're looking to help and work in your favor the the
1: listeners can't see it on the podcast but i'm grinning from ear to ear as, as you explain that this is going to empower every individual on the planet to improve their situation
0: Roger Veer, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me and to talk to our listeners. I wish you all the best. Uh, Bitcoin Cash Evangelist, Bitcoin Cash Jesus, Roger Veer, thank you very much. Thank you so much.